Hello everyone and welcome to the Reading Materials podcast. My name is Cory and my co-host is Lucia and we are two friends who read a book every couple of weeks and then discuss it on the show. However, this bonus episode we interviewed Foz Meadows who is an Australian author, blogger and poet. We discussed their upcoming book, All the Hidden Paths, which is a sequel to A Strange and Stubborn Endurance, the process of becoming an author and getting a book published, and there's even a bonus discussion about Buffy the Vampire Slayer at the end. I hope you enjoy it, and we'll be back next week with our regularly scheduled programme. Tell us a bit about yourself. Oh, uh, well, I am Australian. Uh, I've been living in the US for five years. And previously, I lived in the UK for five years. So I have bounced around a bit uh, in the English-speaking world on account of being married to an academic. But yeah, I have now published five novels and a novella, and I have another novel and another novella coming out in December and possibly January. I'm not sure yet when the novella is coming out, just that it's sometime either at the end of this year or the start of next year. Yeah, and I have a uh, a rocket for yelling on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So you're you're in the states now. Yes, I am in sunny Southern California, which is very surreal because America, in many respects, is not a real place. Like, mm-hmm. I know I live here, but having lived here for five years, it still doesn't feel like a real place in many respects. It is like, mentally, it is like living in a backdrop <laughs> um, to some extent, because there are certain architectural choices and, you know, food, fast food place choices that I've only grown up seeing in American TV <laughs> series. And so some part of my brain, even when surrounded by them, is just like, this is not a real place. You are inside of a television show. Uh, and I feel that is intensified <laughs> by living in specifically Southern California. And you're there because of the academia. Yes. Yes. So are you are you a full-time author? I am at the moment, which is bizarre. Um, I was not always for a very long time I wrote and I worked various administrative uh day jobs in a variety of capacities and then when my son was born I went when we were still in Scotland at that point that was when I last had my day job uh I was working part-time at a community center uh at front of house then we moved back to Brisbane to Australia and the original plan had been for me to get a job, but the cost of childcare where we were was <laughs> so extraordinary that anything I would have made going to the job facilitating me to have childcare would be eaten by the cost of the childcare, which kind of made it a washout. Um, in the end, my mother or my parents and my in-laws chipped in some money so that we could send our son to daycare, you know, like two days a week and I could have something of a break, which was very nice of them. Um, But yeah, I didn't work while I was there. And then when we came to the US, I couldn't work because I didn't have a green card. We were here (laughs) on my husband's visa. I was on a spouse visa. And Mm -hmm. as it so happened, because it's the university taking care of all of the visa stuff, the end game of that was both of us getting a green card, which we then did. And it so happened that me getting the green card coincided with me getting my book deal with Tor. Um, and that was all 
sort of stressful at the time because there were a number of things that had to be done very quickly in in succession and of course it was during the pandemic so everything was shut down uh but the upshot was that because of that book contract I did not have to go out and try and get a day job here and thus far I have not had to so who knows if that'll change in the future but (laughs) for the moment I am a degenerate writer lurking at home excellent I think that's what everybody secretly wishes they were so yeah they've kind of made it (laughs) does it does free you from tyranny of underpants in your own home so Uh, i mean what more could you want (laughs) (laughs) yeah can you (laughs) yeah could you tell us a little bit more about um, how you managed to get your book deal? What, what's the process like trying to become, a, I guess, signed to a publishing house? So, all right, my sort of quote-unquote publishing journey, I hate using that phrase, but that's what it is, is fairly <laughs> unusual, I think, which increasingly the longer I spend in the industry, the less I'm convinced that there is like a standard publishing experience. But mine is weird in that I started out, my first two books that were published were published in Australia at a very small local press called Ford Street Publishing. And that was literally me in my very, very early 20s submitting to the slush pile. And at the time, this was like the height of Twilight and Twilight knockoffs and everybody like having that boom in young adult urban fantasy. And I had written like a young adult vampire novel. And Mm -hmm. that got picked up by this very small Australian publishing house. And they're very lovely. Um, And it was meant to be originally a trilogy, but the Australian book market kind of collapsed around when I would have been selling them the third one. And as such, well, actually, no, it it collapsed around when the second one came out. So nobody bought the second one. Um, This was a huge thing. You remember when Borders collapsed? The Borders book chain? Yeah, yeah, so Borders was huge in Australia and they had like massive stakes in our two other major book chains, which are Angus and Robertson and Dimmix. And so at the time when Borders collapsed, it basically took half the Australian book industry with it. So the first book mm-hmm. in this sort of indie series did very, very well. It earned out. The second one has sold like 15 copies because literally no one was buying indies at the time that it came out. And I had by that point moved to the UK, so I couldn't promote it. Um whereas I had been able to do school events and everything for the first series. So on that basis, the publisher didn't pick up the third one. So that's just mm-hmm. sort of a perennially incomplete trilogy, but it got me my my foot in the door. And on that basis, you know, then once we were in the UK, I was trying to find an agent. I, re- I eventually did find an agent. Uh, she was who got me my uh, two-book deal with Angry Robot, who published An Accident of Stars and A Tyranny of Queens. Uh, and I also at that time published a uh, Shakespearean novella called Coral Bones as part of an anthology about, I forget which anniversary of Shakespeare's life slash death, but it was one and it was a, the conceit of the anthology was all of Shakespeare's plays are real and exist in the same setting and the bard has cameos and all of you write stories using these characters. Uh, So Coral Bones was about what happens to Miranda after the events of The Tempest when she sort of goes on a magical road trip with Puck from A Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, cool. And I was very happy with that. Uh, then there was, I shall summarize it as a contretemps with my former agency. Uh, things 
did not go well. We were back in Australia by that point. Uh, I ended up parting ways with that agency and I was sort of very despairing for a long time. That was 2017. And it wasn't until 2020 uh, that I got my current agent who is wonderful. Uh, and that all sort of came about. I don't know if you guys are aware of this whole like saga. I won't <laughs> go into it cause I'll be here for like half an hour, but um, essentially the head of my previous agency behaved very, very badly, not only towards me, but towards other clients. She was extremely unprofessional. She was extremely, um, I want to, well, I would go so far as almost to say malicious in her dealings with people. Like she was, she was very unpleasant. Um, mm -hmm. and she, at the start of 2020, we will remember there was the death of George Floyd. She lived in Minneapolis and, decided to, in her infinite wisdom, post on Twitter that she had called the police during the protests on people that she saw, quote-unquote, looting a gas station. Um, and everyone was like, hey, um, sucks for the gas station and everything, but maybe don't call the police when they are literally murdering people in this moment. A gas station is not worth people dying. She doubled down, and I think it was four of the five agents at her agency quit in protest mm -hmm. and people started saying oh this is wokeism gone mad people have resigned for no reason this is just blah 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 and i was like well based on my dealings with this woman i'm going to say that this is like the straw that broke the camel's back um and that was the thing that prompted me to say hey here is the experience i had with this woman um and i'm sharing this specifically to say yeah no these people have left on principle but it's also not just this in my experience it will also be that she is terrible to work for slash with and then that sort of prompted a bunch of other people to come out at the same time and say, hey, yeah, we had similar experiences. And a lot of the agents who hadn't known to go, what the fuck was that? Um, but off the basis of that, because uh, it kind of blew up a bit, uh, and she did try to sue me along with some other people. Um, she didn't like that people were describing her accurately on the internet. So that was the whole thing. Um, but yeah, off the basis of that, a couple of agents reached out to me offering to you know look at what I had on the table at the time. Uh, the mm -hmm. book that I had that I was working on was uh, A Strange and Stubborn, well, what became A Strange and Stubborn Endurance. Uh, and so my current agent picked me up on that basis. She shopped that around. She found it a home at Tor. And here we are. So it's it's a it's a weird trajectory <laughs> to be on because it's sort of like unagented, one agent that didn't work out, publishing with a sort of big indie and then new agent tour. So I have no idea at any given point what is going to happen next because none of it has been remotely consistent or predictable. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. How do you have the tenacity to keep going? I think it's like less a question of emotional tenacity because I did feel very, very like down and out and defeated for a point there, a period there. Um, I think it's less like inherent tenacity and more that I don't know how to not write which is which is a different thing it's not like going fuck you i'm gonna persevere it's more like i have a brain that just does this and if i'm just gonna keep writing anyway then at a certain point you just keep trying to do something with it mm. at this point I, it would be harder not to write um which doesn't mean that i write every single day religiously or that what i write is necessarily any good i just sort of keep doing it <laughs> but mm -hmm. I, I hopefully i'm getting better i'd like to think i'm getting better I mean, so I have read A Strange and Stubborn Endurance, and Lucia is kind of halfway through, I think. And I've also got An Accident of Stars in my bookcase downstairs, but we you're kind of a new-to-me author. 
I was just trying to find authors who were from smaller, you know, less in the public eye, I guess. More indie. I don't know what the term is. I'm sorry. I'm terrible at this whole proper English thing. (laughs) (laughs) So I can't comment on whether or not you're getting better, but I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you probably are. (laughs) I will say uh, if, if, if and when you get to an accident of stars, I apologise in advance for the typos and formatting errors that your edition likely has. It, it causes me pain. It's it's not like it's any one person's fault. It was it was an accident wherein the outside editor uh, accidentally. Well, I mean, it's not like not even accidentally. It's not like they their elbows slipped and they did this. Their computer seemingly had a virus which infected the document. I did a bunch of untracked changes on it right before it was meant to go to press. The formatting looked weird to me, and I was like oh, this must just be how they're laying it out for, you know, ahead of going to press, because I was jumping around in the document, and it wasn't until I'd made all of these on-track changes that I was like, hang on, no, this really doesn't look right. Uh, and it turned out that it, the document had been virused, so that when, like, the tracked changes got accept, it completely fucked the formatting for the entire document. Uh, and somebody, like, I had to go in and try and fix a bunch of stuff, sent it off to the editor and they had to try and like manually reinsert basically every line break in the document in a rush before it went to press. So there was no time for anyone to look it over. Uh, And the upshot of all of this is, is that there are a couple of really egregious typos. There's one on the first page, in fact, uh, where it's meant to say someone oohed and it says oozed instead, Um, (laughs) (laughs) which is not ideal. But um And then there's a couple of sections where, because the line breaks between uh, point of view sections are missing, it looks like I've suddenly really clumsily switched into Omniscient Third, and I haven't. It's just that the line breaks are missing, uh, which is why I was really, really grateful uh, a year or so ago when Angry Robot decided that they were going to do a re-release of Accident of Stars with a new cover, but it, I was like, can I please, please re-edit it? Can I please get rid mm. of these issues? And they said, yes, of course. So the new edition doesn't have those problems but the original edition uh does so i always feel the need to apologize for it because it's like it's nobody's fault it was a virus that screwed the document we didn't it's going to be a collector's edition in 50 years time people will be searching those copies out Mm. (laughs) let's let's hope so a a special collector's edition yeah exactly you say you have a brain that just needs to write how i mean obviously your whole life but how long have you been kind of seriously writing so i kind of decided that writing in one form or another was what i wanted to do when i was about 11 and i just all through high school i was constantly writing stories i was constantly writing like the novel that i was working on which got you know trunked and revisited and trunked and revisited multiple times throughout that period and it's it eventually resulted in this document that in my head i refer to as the goo the great unpublished epic um because it was sort of this very very me as a teenager copying notes from epic fantasy without that necessarily being what i wanted to do like i was it was very imitative uh like it had some good bits in it i think but by and large it was not great and then when I, because I'd, I'd worked on this same thing all through high school, and then when I first sort of went into the workforce doing administrative stuff, um, I decided to just for fun at my computer, you know, in between doing things, do my take on vampires. And that actually wasn't because of Twilight, it was because of Buffy, because I'd started watching Buffy 
Um, <laughs> or I'd been, no, I'd rewatched, I'd started rewatching it. And I was like, I want to do my idea of vampires. So I did that. And then because that was a much shorter young adult novel, it was only about, you know, 60, 70,000 words, as opposed to this sort of like 200,000 word monster that I'd been lugging around with me. That ended, I ended up submitting both of them to slush piles. And it was the vampire book that got picked up. So yeah, I think that, I think at this point I just have ideas and I jot them down and eventually somebody pays me to write one of them. <laughs> that seems to be how it works. So at least hopefully that's how it keeps working. <laughs> what is a slush pile? A slush pile. So a slush pile is unsolicited manuscripts that are sent to a publisher. So right. ordinarily, if you are going to approach a publisher, you do so as somebody who is agented, which means it is not you sub submitting to the publisher. It is your agent reaching out to an editor or somebody else that they know at the publishing house saying, hey, here is my pitch. I've got this story um, and it is a complete manuscript. Are you potentially interested? At which point the agent, well, the editor will say yes or no. A slush pile is when the publishing house has effectively an open submissions policy, or not even necessarily they have an open submissions policy, but people send to them anyway who are not agented and who haven't necessarily read the submission guidelines, just on the off chance that somebody sees it and takes an interest in it, basically. So it's quite rare from a major publishing house to get picked up from the slush pile. Um, but I think it's more common the smaller the publishing house. Mm. So that was the rare series. Yes. And you say that that is a trilogy that hasn't yet had the the third book. Yeah, it's it's I think just potentially forever incomplete at this juncture, which is sad. But um, it it got me started. So yes. And is it in, is it incomplete because you have moved on from that universe? I mean, yes, but also just because I couldn't, you know, once, if you've got the first two books of a series with one publisher, it's very, very hard to find a home for the third one mm -hmm. at a different publisher. Um, so the, the, it, there's sort of a law of diminishing returns in publishing with sequels. Um, mm. The whole idea is that front list sells back list. So if you have a series it's not expected that every book in the series will sell as many copies as the first book. The first book is mm -hmm. always going to sell the most copies. And then it, those sales will get a bump when people see the second book or the third book come out and they decide, oh, I can't read that until I've read the first one. But there's always mm -hmm. going to be people who read the first one but don't particularly move, get feel moved to continue or who read the first two but not the third. So moving a series to a separate publisher when they don't have the rights to the first two books is not a great deal for them because yeah because they're, mm. they're not getting the, the the boost from people picking up the first two books yeah in order to read mm -hmm. the third one and as you say I have kind of like if I had the opportunity perhaps I would sit down and, and finish it but as I don't it's not it's just sort of a funny little quirk in my in my publishing history at this oh. at this point. Um, but I'm very appreciative of everybody who like read and support those books um, because it did mean the world at the time. Mm. And an accident of stars and a tyranny of queens are they intended to be a duology or or yes, yeah, that's an intentional duology. Okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So when you start writing a new book, do you? And you know that it will be part of a, a longer series. Do you plan out the whole series beforehand or do you kind of take it book by book and just see where the story goes? So when I was first writing 
part of the reason that the, the rare was meant to be a trilogy is that I sort of thought in trilogies at the time because so much of mm-hmm. the fantasy that I grew up reading was trilogy based. So I just mm-hmm. kind of absorbed that as the default form of the genre. Whereas now uh, I've switched a lot in terms of my narrative trajectory, my narrative style. Um, and so at this point, like originally when I wrote uh, A Strange and Stubborn Endurance, that was intended to be a standalone. But I got to the end of it and I was like, oh, actually, I think that there is more story to tell here with these two characters. So I was sort of jotted down an outline and this is when my agent was shopping it around and had found an editor who liked it. And I was like, yeah, I think I could do a second one. So that became a two book contract. And those characters mm-hmm. in that world, you know, I feel like I could go back to them if I if I had the chance to do so. Uh, there are more stories I feel like I could tell in that setting because I like the setting. But at the same time, that main story, like that particular arc, is complete mm. in a in a way that I'm happy with. It's just so when I'm so when I'm working now, I don't necessarily know if a book is going to be like book one of a trilogy or book one of a duology or a standalone uh, until I'm some ways into it. So there's a project mm-hmm. I'm working on at the moment, which does not yet have a home. Um, and I'm about 80,000 words into it. And it was really because I had this full arc planned for these characters. And I kept on thinking like, okay, so this bit that I'm writing now is like the first bit. This is the, this is the layup. And then I got to sort of like 70,000 words and I'm like, ideally 70,000 words is not a layup. Like that's not an act one. Unless, <laughs> unless I'm splitting this into two distinct books. And at that point, I was like, yeah, okay, I think actually this is this is two books. And that's kind of where that's sitting at the moment. It doesn't have a home, so my brain is just kind of noodling around with a bunch of different ideas to, to see what sticks and what's fun to play with. Mm. I think one of the things that really struck me about A Strange and Stubborn Endurance is just the the way that you've made sort of a language. I mean, it's obviously written in English, but you've... You've come up with alternate words for a variety of different things, largely gender and relationship from from memory. How where do you get the inspiration for those kinds of words? My thing with secondary world fantasy is and I don't know when I reached this conclusion internally, but it's certainly been in my head for a while now. I feel like if you are writing a secondary world fantasy, then when it comes to the language you have to make a decision about what language the characters are speaking in. Because I think for a long time, the default was sort of this this other world just happens to be speaking in English. Like that just happens to be, or, or whichever like native language you are writing in, th- that happens to be the language that is also the language of this place. Or you can make a decision that the characters are speaking a fictitious language and you, by virtue of telling the story, are functionally a translator. That's the version that I prefer. And so you then come, okay, well, what cultural concepts, what conceits exist in this setting that I don't have clear English counterpart words to? Because that's, I mean, that's why, because I love language. I'm fascinated by language. And I love the ways in which you have different languages with discrete different concepts that do not quite translate one to the other. And particularly when it comes to sexuality and gender, a lot of the time, whether we like to acknowledge it or not, those terms are culturally contingent. A lot of the terms we have, like sort of man, woman, girl, boy, so on, those are generally broadly translatable across cultures. 
But prior to sort of the spread of Christian imperialism throughout the globe, pretty much every culture on earth has had a concept of what it means to be outside of the traditional binary, to be trans or to be non-binary or to be something else. Pretty much we have an incredibly rich cultural history globally of sort of trans and non-binary and more than two gender concepts. But precisely because every culture, every country codes its gender binary differently in terms of what that looks like at a practical cultural level, those terms are not interchangeable. Like what it means to be third gender in, you know, Fiji or in Hawaii is not the same as what it means in one of the very many First Nations cultures, for instance. Because when we say like man, like a man does this and a woman does this, therefore somebody who's outsled those roles does this, it inherently changes. So we can share the the man-woman terms, we can interchange them, but the implications culturally of those terms do not carry over. And we don't always recognize that until we start to look at what are the queer terminologies, what are the trans terminologies, and how do they differ from what is normal in one place. Uh, And that really fascinates me because it tells you so, so much about like what a normative gender expectation is in a given context and so i feel like it's one of those things where it's it feels more organic to the setting to make up my own terminology for that a lot of the time just not even because words like trans and non-binary and lesbian and bisexual can feel anachronistic in a fantasy setting because they are more recent words in english so if we're using them in like even if the if it was an english analog setting if it it would feel weird to use them in a medieval equivalent setting. But the medieval period had its own slang terms for this kind of thing. If you said someone was sapphic or if you said somebody was a Ganymede in sort of like 1300s Jerusalem, that would be understood to mean a gay man because Ganymede is the beautiful cupbearer of Zeus who was so lovely that he abducted him the way he abducted pretty women. So if you call someone Mm -hmm. a Ganymede in that setting, you know what that slang term means. Um, so we have the, we've always had words for all of this. It's just that some of them are more recent than others. So apart from trying to get around that sort of anachronistic feeling, but again, sometimes you can lean into it. I do know there are fantasy authors who do lean into it and it's great fun. Um, but I think it has to be intentional, whatever you're doing. You have to actually think mm-hmm. about what the language is, how it's being translated, how it works in a setting, what you are trying to achieve. And that I think yeah that that's sort of my that's sort of my intentional practice around it how easy is it to introduce those words into a novel because obviously you don't want to sort of sit there and list this means this and this means this or this is the analogy to that but you also don't want to just go straight in as if the reader knows already because then they're going to be completely confused so is that a difficult process it can be It can be because sometimes you'll have like a load bearing concept that you really need the person to know, the reader to know up front, and you don't want to necessarily info dump about it. But sometimes there is no way around, like you have to do a little bit of info dumping. Mm. But I kind of like a little bit of info dumping in the sense that I like being thrown into a setting and having to learn it as I go. Um, But you just don't want it to read clunkily. So I feel like the best way to try and introduce things is is naturalistically is as they occur. But there are also little tricks that you can use to get around it. So in this uh, thing that I'm writing at the moment, 
one of the the sort of sneaks that I'm using that I'm very pleased with to get around explaining some elements of the world building, uh, which is kind of magic heavy, uh, is by doing the Robin Hobb trick of putting snippets from in-world texts at the start of each chapter, um, mm -hmm. which I love because then it provides you this perfect excuse to explain something that is salient to that chapter or to the story. And it doesn't matter that it's an info dump because that's what it's meant to be. It's actually telling you about something bigger, which is how this concept is viewed in the world and providing you a sort of example of wider texts within that setting, which can be very, very fun. Um, so you can use little things like that. You can also have like an outsider character. If somebody is new to a particular cultural setting, then they need it explained to them as well. So they become like the entry character for you, the reader, having them explained to so that you are explained to. Mm -hmm. And other times it's just you can sneak it into the narration or you can uh, sneak it into the dialogue in a way where the, the reader can pick it up from from inference but it's fun it's definitely a fun challenge mm. great i think you did it really well in a strange and stubborn endurance because i think there was one point where i was like oh these are new concepts that are being introduced to us or new i don't know what the word is when the sequel to a strange and stubborn endurance comes out which is all the hidden paths yes you you've said earlier that you th you feel like the sort of main arc for I guess it's Velison and Kay is completed. Yes. So what can we expect from that from the second book? Okay, so the second book is structurally meant to be sort of like a mirror to the first book. So there are some structural similarities in terms of what's happening in the sense of uh, the two of them are summoned to the capital city, which is Kizihan. There is court intrigue going on. There are more murders going on, uh, political jockeying, all of that kind of stuff. So in that sense, it's meant to be a thematic mirror to the first book, except, you know, the first book, they're learning to work as a unit. Uh, and this is the second book being the unit under stress um, mm -hmm. and figuring out how they now work as pair, how to actually have a functional marriage that works in this kind of political context and what the wider implications of that are. Uh, and it's also dealing, without spoiling the first book for anyone who hasn't read it, it's also, here are the further consequences of the conclusion of the first book, uh, particular for, particularly for Cathari. Um, here's how that feels in a continuing sense. Here's how he's coping with that. But also, like, the the main sort of thematic through line beyond the practical is the question of, okay, so you've come out, now what? Because that's a place that Velison has never been mm. able to go to before. He's come from a homophobic country. He was not, he spent most of the first book sort of grappling with, like, how do marriage to man work? because he doesn't know, he has no framework for this being a thing. He has no occupational sense of himself as a husband, except some bastardized notion of himself as a wife, because that's the only cultural framework that he has for this. And so the first book is him sort of like figuring out, okay, this can work. And the second book is going, okay, but what does that practically mean? Now that I've come out, now that I am inhabiting this role, how did that work and what does that look like and how do I proceed through it? Like, how do I actually be 
a husband? How do I actually be a spouse? And how do I help in this in this context? Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, just sort of him further understanding that, and both of them trying to have a better notion of of who they are, both individually and and as a couple. Mm-hmm. So would you say when you're plotting out the book, would you say that um, the world building is more important to you, or is it the relationship between the central characters that you want to focus on more? Uh, definitely the definitely the relationship, but with the caveat that the relationship is intimately tied up with the world building because mm-hmm. the world building defines the context of the relationship. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's it's still very much an emotional emotionally centered through line uh, mm-hmm. in terms of how they are experiencing events and how they are experiencing each other. Everything else is just kind of not it's not secondary. But it's it's a question of like where the where the narrative emphasis lies, so to speak. So it's like here is this relation, here is the world building as experienced through the lens of this relationship, as opposed to here is this relationship experienced through the lens of the world building. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I've forgotten what I was going to ask, but I have a new question. <laughs> <laughs> How did the idea for the books? come about did you did you kind of have the world that you wanted to write about or did you did the characters come to you or did you sort of think this is a kind of story that I would like to tell let's see if I can write one so I started writing what became a strange and stuff and endurance in 2015 and it was in a in a, in a period when between having finished and turned in an accident of stars, but before I would start to work properly on a tyranny of Queens when I'm just sort of in a lull between books. And I was sort of very, very heavily reading fan fiction at the point. And I wanted to write something just as like a fun exercise for me that mirrored what I loved most about various fan fictions that I was reading. Like I wanted to write something that was queer and about queer men and a romance and I wanted to do it in a secondary world fantasy setting. And so I just sort of started with Velison and the opening sort of, apart from some small world building tweaks that I added later, those sort of first five, six, seven chapters are essentially as I wrote them at the time. And I wrote the first, I think it was about 50 or 60,000 words in about three months in 2015. And then I had to stop because I owed a tyranny of Queens and I had to work on that. And so that sort of took me away from it until sort of 2017, 2018. Uh, And then I was very dispirited for a while, so I wasn't really working on anything. I would occasionally come back to it and think, oh, I think this is good, nibble at it and then go away again. But it wasn't until sort of 2020 when my present agent reached out to me and and liked what I had of it that I thought, okay, no, I'm just going to sit down and finish it. And so I then did sit down and finish it in another couple of months. So it sort of took five years or, you know, five months to write, depending on on how you measure things. But what's really funny to me is that at the time, so when I was writing it first in 2015, I was sending it every time I sort of updated the document to my friend Liz Burke, who writes very, very good book reviews among among her many talents uh, for Tor. And she was loving it. So we had this sort of ongoing joke of me sending it to her and her asking for the next bit and the next bit and the next bit. And then obviously I had to stop and she understood that. But at the time, a 
she then sent me a link to something saying, hey, I found this original story on AO3, so not using somebody else's characters, uh, that is spiritually similar to what you are writing. And I was like, oh, great. And it was updating at the same time, too. So I started reading that. And that is the book that went on to become Winter's Orbit by Everina Maxwell. She published that first as original fiction on AO3. And so (laughs) I was very, very excited when it got published because it's a fantastic story. But it was really, really funny because our books ended up being comps for one another. But we both started completely independently in 2015 without ever having spoken to each other or, or known each other. But because of when those books came out, people looked at a strange and stubborn endurance and went, Oh, this is like, this is basically just winter's orbit, but not in space. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, I'm, I mean, I might've taken some inspiration from, from her arc, but five years ago, <laughs> rather than mm. in in the present, but I, but not in terms of like when I was sitting down to pick what to start writing. Cause I'd already started by the time I encountered it but I I think that's Mm. a funny thing how that works out timing wise Mm. at the beginning of A Strange and Stubborn Endurance there's a particularly harrowing and confronting scene with Velison and his old lover what was it like writing that scene? The scene in question is a sexual assault Mm -hmm. there's a trigger warning for it at the start of the book the thing is and I, and I, (laughs) I feel kind of weird saying this but to me, the scene is not that bad in terms of obviously it's distressing and upsetting. It's meant to be upsetting. But for a very long time there, I was living in the sort of dead dove slash hurt comfort tags on AO3. And compared to a lot of what I was reading in those tags, it's very, very mild. Because when people on AO3 go hard, they go hard. Mm-hmm. So that was my personal yardstick for what a really upsetting scene could look like. And so I was like, okay, this scene is emotionally difficult, but it's not, I wasn't thinking of it as a graphic scene because I mean, there are some just like you physically know what is going on, but I'm not dwelling in like visceral physical details, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It's more about how it feels that this is happening in the wider context of what it like, emotionally personally this is distressing but i'm not like graphically describing the act so to speak Mm. that's it's you still know what's happening but it's not graphic in that sense when i did the first trigger warning for it it was a different wording and then there was somebody that i sent it to who was like you need to change the trigger warning you need to make it more explicit because i was not expecting what i received um i just thought it was going to be kind of like you know an alluded to event not on page Mm -hmm. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay, great. Fair enough. I will I will change that. But reactions to that scene continue to surprise me because, and again, it's just, it depends, I suppose, how much of that kind of content you have read or how much you are comfortable reading. So for me, I'm like, I could make that scene so much worse. I, it doesn't need to be worse to achieve the end game result. It, If I've made it much worse, it would radically change what Velison is doing as a character. It's still mm-hmm. a bad scene. It's just my personal yardstick for bad scenes of that nature is way over here. Mm-hmm. And so everybody was reacting to this scene and the, the word that people kept on using to describe it was graphic. And I'm like, but it's not, it's not like 
it's emotionally graphic, but it's not physically graphic. These are, and these I feel very strongly are two distinct. These are two different things. And so I think a lot of people got kind of put off the book thinking, oh, it's going to be this really lurid physical description. And it's, mm-hmm. it's not, it's still distressing. It's meant to be distressing, but it's not mm-hmm. that. Whereas compared to something like, and I'm really, really glad these books are getting a reissue. Um, so Catherine Addison, who wrote The Goblin Emperor, also writes or wrote as Sarah Manette. And she had this absolutely phenomenal quadrilogy four book series called the doctrine of labyrinths that came out in the i think early noughties or closer to the no it wouldn't have i think something around 2009 to 2010 is i think vaguely when these books originally came out but they didn't do very well and they just kind of faded away and then she got a new start under the Catherine addison pen name and of course the goblin emperor did incredibly well so all four books have now been reissued by Tor but the first book in that series starts effectively with a rape and it is way more graphic than (laughs) than what is in A Stranger Summer Series like of necessity because it's it's describing something that is being done like a violation that is part of a fucked up magical ritual that the overall villain of the series is committing um Mm -hmm. so it's meant to be horrific because everything that follows in that book that first book particularly is horrific like every single trigger warning applies to that book and it's so good um Mm -hmm. if you can read that kind of content but there is nothing happy that is happening in that book to the main Mm -hmm. character it's just here is every bad thing one after Mm -hmm. the other befalling this man and so i sort of had that in my head as a as a yardstick for publishing this kind of stuff. Also, I read Sarah Douglas growing up. I don't know. If, did, did, have either of you ever read Sarah Douglas? No. No. Sarah Douglas was an Australian fantasy author, uh, and she was one of the... She's sadly passed on now. She was one of, like, my linchpin fantasy authors growing up. And there are criticisms I can have of her world-building and her writing as an adult that I would not have had as a, as a teenager. But one thing that she consistently did was incredibly graphic and incredibly lurid um depictions of sexual assault and things of that nature Mm -hmm. and so yeah i think it's it's just very i'm very glad that we now live in an era where people put trigger warnings for this kind of stuff at the start of book i think it helps people you know be better equipped to tackle material that might be generally upsetting or might be triggering to them i think that's that's a good idea although with the caveat that you cannot warn for every single thing because every single trigger in the world is like anything potentially can be a trigger. So I think it makes sense to warn for like the major ones, Mm -hmm. but at a certain point, there's going to be a cutoff. Like you can't warn the map becomes the territory. You can't warn for everything, Mm. but (laughs) yeah, certain, if you, if you were reading a certain type of fantasy in, in the nineties or in the noughties, uh, it, There is a lot of stuff that was included in a lot of those books that I think would would get the authors cancelled were it published now. Mm. So I think, yeah, d- depending on when you grew up in your reading life, you are probably going to have a different reaction to certain types of content. But that's, again, but that's also, a lot of that is not just like a generation thing. That's also just, if you have been alive longer, you will have read more things 
um, regardless of the era in question. So you're going to have more to compare it to. And and I think it's very (laughs) easy to get sort of stuck into a genre or stuck into a certain type of book and therefore never come across things that you're not used to, which I think might have been partly the case for me, just because, you know, I've, I've had a baby recently and so kind of started in nice and gentle and then I was I was slightly shocked and and as you say it wasn't because of the you know the sort of physical graphicness of it it was the emotional side of it and it just the way that you've written it you can really feel the effect it has had on Vellison right at the beginning and then throughout the book. So I think that's possibly why I was like, well, but I thought it was a really brave thing. I can remember saying to my husband, wow, you know, this author hasn't hasn't sort of shied away from like just getting straight into it, which one of the things that we often say about the books that we read is that the beginning is really slow because of all the world building. And I certainly didn't feel that. <laughs> um <laughs> I had people say like, oh, you know, did you really need to do that? Did it really need to be there? And and I kind of think it does because you're so intimately, because it's first person, because Vellison's sections are first person, you are so intimately in his head and in his perspective and nothing that follows in terms of his first encounter with Kethari, none of that is going to make sense, I think, as much to the reader if you do not understand what has happened to him where it's come from like if i had used a phase to black a fade to black or i had talked around it Mm. i don't i i think there would have been a detachment for the reader Mm. between what had happened to him and and what it had caused him to feel it wouldn't have been like i feel like sex scenes of all kinds whether they are consensual or not are very very difficult to write because there is a certain amount of information that you have to convey and you are suddenly very restricted in how you can do it. But I do think they're often necessary because in the same way that fight scenes are necessary. Like if you, if you are taking the time to show two people having a fight, probably that engagement is very, very important. So you need to have a vague sense of physically what they're doing. You need to understand their motivations, their relationship to each other, why the fight is important, the back and forth, you know, and, and the outcome. And if you were to kind of say, if you were trying to, you know, if you were to set up two characters as having this intense rivalry and then everything's leading up to this encounter and then you suddenly did like a fade to black and said, and then they had the sword fight and this is what happened after you, you'd be reading that going, what? Mm. Like that doesn't, why have you skipped over that? We need to see how it played out. We need to know exactly how this feels for the participants. And I feel like it's something similar here. Like if it had less, if it was a thing with less narrative weight in the book, then yeah, I could have skipped over it, but it's not. It's like this. It's the in, literally the inciting incident for the entire mm-hmm. book that mm. follows, and that waters down everything that follows. If you don't know, if you don't have as visceral and emotional investment in not just the event, but in the impact that it has on on the the character. Mm, yeah, I have so many more in-depth questions I could ask but um, I've just noticed that we have been going for nearly an hour and unfortunately with the small child I have a bit of a time limit on me. Is there anything that you want to tell us about the publication of All the Hidden Paths whether there's anything more in terms of the book itself or if is there any pub you know are there any publicity events that you're doing any book readings? 
Uh, I hope so, uh, but I haven't. We're not at the point of organising. Too early to tell. Too early to tell. Uh, so yeah. hopefully I'll get to do some some book events. That would be really really nice. I would I would love that. I'll probably at the very least do some online stuff. Um, but I'm really proud of it as a book. I think it's really solid. And I there is one character in particular that I am looking forward to people encountering and reacting to because I think he's going to divide opinions as to <laughs> you know whether or not people like him or like what they think his role is that kind of thing uh I I love him obviously because I wrote him but I shall be interested to see what people think of him mm. oh you've got me intrigued <laughs> I mean I want to find out more about Markle I want to know what what Markle's story is you do get more information about Markle and and Vel's history in this book. Like, not a heap, but you get more. Actually, can I ask, what was that like, writing about two characters who communicate in sign language? Is that something that you have personal experience with, or how did that come about? Uh, literally, when I sat down, when I sort of in my first fugue state in 2015, sat down to write the story, it literally just came out that way. Um, mm -hmm. I was writing... You know, just I just off the top, I didn't sit down and plan anything. I just started writing, and it came out that Markle was mute. It just that mm -hmm. was, it just felt naturalistic. That was just one of, like clearly something had ticked over in here, and that was the thing. But my only sort of personal experience is uh, when I was in primary school, um, we all learned Australian Sign Language a little bit, uh, which I still so I still know the very 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 basics of Australian Sign Language, which is just literally the alphabet. <laughs> but we all learnt that in my primary school and I thought it was really cool. I've always thought it was really cool. And it ties into my interest in language. Um, mm -hmm. And I think given that, you know, Velison is a character who, who functionally speaks three languages because he speaks the sign language, he speaks Ralian and he speaks Tiffany. I think the idea of him as somebody who likes languages just sort of made that come in naturally and I think maybe that was something I had in my head like oh he's going to have to know the language of the country that he's moving to what if he also knows this other language and it I think as well in terms of like narrative structure it gives him and Markle a private language almost because so few people around them know this and I feel like there's a, like I don't say this explicitly in the text but I feel like there is an extent to which if Markle were not mute, their friendship would have been discovered and suspected prior to this uh, within Ralia because people would focus on him more if they felt that he could speak in a way that they understood, if he was speaking aloud, if their exchanges were verbal and other people could overhear them. And that was something that they were constantly having to guard around. I think they would not have been able to get away with their friendship um being quite as deep as it is and quite as visible as it is it's just that because markle is mute people don't pay attention to him people mm -hmm. overlook him they assume that he can't have this rich inner life that he can't have these rich meaningful conversations with velison even if velison were inclined to talk to him in that way because they don't look at that between a master and a servant but if if that were not the case if markle could speak i think his, that that exact same relationship with the exact same degree of visibility would have been scrutinized a lot more 
within their home country uh, and would have been a source of a great deal more suspicion. But so because of that, in, in a very real sense, I think Markle being mute enables their friendship because it means mm. people don't pay as much attention and they don't know what they're saying between them. So they can have these full conversations while they're out and about and people will just dismiss it. Whereas if they were saying it out loud, people will be like, why does he keep talking to his servant like that? Why does he mm-hmm. let his servant talk to him mm-hmm. like that? Mm-hmm. I think it also gives, it shows sort of Kathari's genuine interest in Velison and Markle because one of the first things he does is say, well, I want to learn the sign language as well. So yeah, I thought that was, uh, yeah, brilliant. Will all the hidden paths come out on audio as well? Yes. Okay. Yes. Cool. With the same, the same wonderful narrators, uh, James and Vikas, who did the first audiobook. Excellent. Good. That is the only way I'm able to consume literature at the moment. So, <laughs> <laughs> Lucia, did you have anything else you wanted to ask? Not really. I think we covered quite a bit. Actually, I have mm. one question. So, as far as I understand, you've mostly written fantasy books. Do you think you'd ever? steer away from this genre and try something else or will you firmly firmly stay in the the fantasy genre so i mean i've definitely written short stories that are science fiction mm-hmm. <laughs> i think at one point i i would like to try my hand at horror i would definitely like to to try horror as to if i would ever write anything non non-genre i don't know it's interesting when i was younger like when I was a kid and I was starting to write, I wrote a lot of comedy. Mm-hmm. And I do think actually I'm quite good at comedy. It's just that it only tends to come out in in my sort of fantasy novels in the banter between characters and that sort of back and forth and that sort of occasionally waspish narrative voice. But a lot of who I am as a person and a lot of the material that I grew up kind of reading and watching and listening to as a kid is firmly rooted in comedy. So, you know, I could conceivably, I could see myself at some point writing a romantic comedy or just writing something that was meant to be funny. I think the one type of writing that I can't see myself doing is, like, sort of straight drama in terms Mm -hmm. of, like, no speculative fiction elements, whatever, I think, because that's... To me, in terms of dealing with dark topics or deep topics, fantasy is the spoonful of sugar that makes the medicine go down somehow. Uh, and it becomes more real to me, I think, because of that. Like, there is some some part of me that forever looks at, and I use straight not to mean heterosexual, just to mean um, sort of unadulterated, that looks at, like, straight drama or sort of straight fiction and is just like, but why, though? Like... I understand intellectually that it's very good and that people like it. I've read some that I like even, but I'm always just like, really? You're not going to put a dragon in there? You're not, you're not going to, there's not going to be any magic. Like not, not even one little Wafrithian spaceship. Like we're not, you know, we're not, why, why not? Why, why would you not put that in there if you, if you could? And I think I am just married to whimsy as a, <laughs> as a, as a concept, but yeah, who knows? I think, I think I'm probably more likely to write something funny than I am to write something serious or which whose seriousness is leavened with comedy. Um, but I don't know if I'll get there anytime soon. Too many dragons as yet unwritten. So. Yeah. 
Amazing. Um, I have a silly question just to maybe finish off, just for my own interest. Are you Team Angel, Team Riley, or Team Spike? Spike. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He's just the most interesting. Overwhelmingly, he is the most interesting of the three. Riley is is white bread and he's meant to be. Um, And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I enjoy a white bread sandwich. But he's not (laughs) got the narrative momentum of the other two. And Angel, like, Angel, I think, becomes a more interesting character, particularly when he gets his own show. Um, Yeah. When they started writing him, literally the idea was just like, yes, and she will have a hot, brooding, older, mysterious boyfriend. And that's not bad, it's just very simplistic. Whereas Spike has this beautiful villain decay arc, where he starts out as the bad guy, and then they have to, and he's, but he's funny as the bad guy. He is a funny, complete, interesting, scary, sexy bad guy. And to take where he begins and move him through the arc that he has is just so compelling to me. Even if he wasn't a love interest for Buffy, mm-hmm. the arc that he gets in the show is just, to me, one of the best in the entire thing in both shows. And I love I love what happens with it. So, yeah, even though, even though there is the moment in season, season six or season seven where he does the thing, I think actually the narrative grapples with that overtly more than it does any of the other bad shit that any of the other characters do. And of course, like, we all know now that Joss Whedon is a terrible human being and was a terrible human being on the set of Buffy, which does kind of colour the the memory of the show in an unfortunate yeah. way. But, yeah. um, you know, you can't deny the impact that it's had, and and I think I prefer personally to focus on the incredible performances by the women and the number of writers who got their careers launched by that show, and a number of other creatives. Raman Jawadi effectively got his career launched by Buffy. This is the guy who did the opening music for Game of Thrones and for basically mm-hmm. every other major movie slash TV show that you could name from like the past ten years. Look up Raman Jawadi. He did the he sort of starts in Buffy. He does the music for the final fight in um, season seven. Amazing. So, yeah, and there's, like, like Jane Espenson um, yeah. and all of these other writers who really, if, if they didn't get their start with Buffy, they certainly got a boost from it and that you can sort of track, like, the cultural inheritance of all of the, the great writers and creatives who got who went on to make this other great stuff who started there. And I think that's, that is the legacy that I prefer to focus on over Whedon himself. Mm-hmm. But yeah, within that show, there's a lot of messed up stuff that happens that characters do that is never called out by the narrative. That is particularly Xander, like that never gets addressed in terms of how fucked up it actually is. But they do that yeah. with Spike because they, they kind of have to in order to sell you the audience on that relationship at all, they have to unflinchingly address him in a way that they just do not with a lot of the other characters and particularly the other men. And I think that just makes Mm. him a richer, more interesting character. Um, So yeah, Spike. (laughs) Agreed, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Team Spike all the way. 
so maybe just to to finish off, if people wanted to find you online, is there a platform where you're most active? Uh, well, I mean, at the moment, you know, Twitter is circling the proverbial drain. Uh, I'm on Blue Sky. I'm on TikTok. You know, I, who knows? There'll be probably a new one in another five minutes. But, uh, <laughs> everywhere that I am, I'm I'm Boz Meadows, so I'm I'm fairly accessible on the internet. I'm still on Tumblr. Wow. I'm still on Tumblr. And I am mad. I am mad about the decay of Twitter because yeah, I was there first. Literally, <laughs> my account is older than Elon Musk's account. I have been on the cursed bird site for longer than him. And I intend to outlast him. Just <laughs> I'm also not going to pay him money because... So... Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, in that case, we just search for Foz Meadows on the everywhere and we'll find you. Excellent. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. And what what date does the book come out, All the Hidden Paths? Expected publication December 5th. There we go. Okay. Ah, very good. Lovely. Well, we will look forward to reading that. And it's been a really interesting discussion. As I say, I have probably thousands more questions, but time, time is our enemy. <laughs> As ever, linear time is a harsh mistress. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and to answer all of our questions. Yeah, we wish you all the best and can't wait to read the follow-up to A Strange and Stubborn Endurance. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. All right. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about us and the podcast, visit our website at readingmaterialspodcast.com. We also publish additional content, including blog posts around the world of books and our thoughts on the topic. If you'd like to get in touch, email us at reading.materials.podcast at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at readingmaterialspod. Until next time, keep reading.